Hey everyone, I'm Tangia Renee, your host, and I'm tickled silly to bring you season two of That's What She Did, a podcast about women leaders, innovators, and rebels you've probably never heard of. I'm bringing you stories about remarkable warrior women, rabble rousers, fearless truth tellers, empire builders, and so much more. This season, shaking things up a bit and bringing you a new co-host for each episode. That means each week you get to hear directly from a woman of impact and learn all about her badassery that she's creating in the world while we gab about current events or whatever's on our minds. And of course, we'll be highlighting the stories of incredible women from all over the world that will inspire you on your journey. You don't want to miss this because when you bring together lady bosses to talk about other lady bosses, and maybe throw in a drink or two, well, anything could happen. Thanks for joining us, and don't forget to subscribe to That's What She Did, the podcast. Smooches! You're listening to Season 2, Episode 7 of That's What She Did, the podcast, and I'm your host, Tanji Renee. Before we get started, I want to give a very special thank you to one of our inspiration junkies, one of our incredible listeners who left us a really lovely review. This person goes by the name of Mom Boss Hustle. They wrote, I love the idea of a podcast specifically about the women who are so incredible and unknown. Having all of these stories readily available for when I need some uplifting is so necessary. Well, thank you, Mom Boss Hustle. We're here to serve. For all the other inspiration junkies out there, please continue to share this podcast with your friends so we can continue to inspire and reach more people. Your shares and your reviews help increase our rankings and get us into more ears. Thank you all from the bottom of my heart. Now it's time to get ready for your next episode. Smooches! Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of That's What She Did, the podcast. I'm super honored to have Representative Leslie Herod in the studio with me today to talk about all of the amazing things that she's doing in the world, some really important ballot initiatives that she's working on that are going to impact the city of Denver, and a really cool woman that we all should know about because she's probably never ever going to be famous and she did something important. So welcome, everyone. Let me introduce Representative Herod. So Representative Leslie Herod represents House District 8 in Northeast Denver in state, the State House of Representatives. She captured over 38,000 votes in 2016 and received the highest number of votes for any State House candidate running in a contested race. Mm. Congratulations. <laughs> she is also the first African-American LBGT candidate elected to the state legislature, which I was shocked, by the way, when I found that out. (laughs) Um, Additionally, Representative Harris has served as the board of directors for Urban Peak, Colorado's leading homeless youth services agency. She is also a co-founder of New Era Colorado, which is an organization I love personally, Uh, the state's leading organization focused on the engagement of young people in our community and has served as president of the Colorado Black Women for Political Action. Welcome. Mm-hmm. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So happy to have you here. Thanks for making the time. I know that a representative's life is crazy and wild and it's new every day. So I appreciate you taking out the time to come down. Anytime. Thank you. So 
Representative Herod, please. And you can call me Leslie. <laughs> okay, Leslie, let's do that. <laughs> Leslie is shorter. <laughs> it's shorter. Rolls nicely off the tongue. Yeah. So I wanted to bring you in to the studio today, not just because you're the first LGBT woman to be elected um, in the state of Colorado for, for which in the state house legislator, which blows me away. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> which blows yeah, me away. Yeah, I think actually... You know, we've we've been talking about this a lot, and I think it's more accurate to say that I'm the first African-American openly LGBT person Mm. to hold office at all in Colorado, in any seat, um, local, state, or or federal. Um, But openly is important, right? right? Because I do believe that there are others who have served, who possibly are serving, who just don't identify as LGBT or who don't feel comfortable coming out just yet. How has that been received? You know, it's been received pretty well. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that people in the African-American community knew that I was a member of the LGBT community as well. I didn't have to hide anything. I didn't try to hide anything. Um, And now in my work as a legislator, it's important for me to show the intersectionality of our communities, right? And that we're not a monolith and that, you know, the LGBT community does not just mean a wealthy white man, mm-hmm. um, that the African-American community holds people who are also LGBT, um, and that there is an intersectionality there that we need to uh, um, bring forth. Right. Right. It's just amazing to me that I know, maybe it's a, a certain level of naivete that I have just being I'm like an elder millennial, like the very eldest. What year? <laughs> I was born in 82. Me too. Okay. So, or, or maybe we're Zennial. We're Zennial. Whatever that yeah. thing is. Yeah. Whatever. Um, but just growing up in a much more diverse world that it didn't occur to me, even though I you know, did some work in politics in my previous life. And um, in fact, I think that's how I first became aware of who you were, was um, when you were co-founding New Era. I was doing some engagement, like GOTV stuff with college students. Oh, cool. Um so it didn't initially occur to me until you ran. I live in your district, by the way. Oh, good. <laughs> I was like, really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really? I guess it, it just never occurred to me. It was, it's not something, I mean, it's a level of privilege I have as well. It's just, it's just not something that I have to think about. Yeah. So I didn't. But. Yeah. You know, and I say that while I am the first, I won't be the last. No, definitely not. You know, and hopefully more people can see that um, you can live your truth. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be out, you can be black in Colorado and serve. Um, and I'm proud of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, hopefully we'll see more run very quickly, very soon. And um, we do have another African-American female who's running for RTD board. Uh, and she's LGBT, Chantel, uh, and she's amazing. Okay. And she's running uh, to represent Northeast Denver on the uh, regional transportation district board. So our public transportation. I look forward to seeing her career grow, too. Interesting. Yes. And listeners, for those of you that are interested, I will make sure and uh, link for you guys to uh, Chantel's page yeah. in the show notes so that you can check her out as well. So, Leslie, what brings you to this work? How, yeah. I mean, it's it's um it's definitely a calling. I think it's something that you have to be deeply called to do to you to run for and serve in public office. Mm-hmm. So what brought you here? You know, I think growing up, I didn't see a lot of African-American females um, holding elected office. You know, I do history reports or uh, look through the books and you just didn't see a lot of examples of African-American females serving. 
Um, until I saw a profile of Barbara Jordan, mm-hmm. who um, is African American uh, Congresswoman, and that kind of inspired me as a younger person to think about what the political system looked like, how it impacted our communities, and how we could use politics and policy to for the betterment of our people. And that was when I was really young, mm-hmm. you know. And then as you get older, realities hit, and you look around, especially in places like Colorado, and you say. Well, there can't I can't run here, you know. Right. That's not my thing. I must I'll be behind the scenes or I'll do something else. And I did that for a while. I was behind the scenes and I was an aide and an intern and when I was kind of watching the political landscape in Colorado, there was only one other African American female serving in the state legislature mm-hmm. out of a hundred members, just one. Um, and while that kind of made me step back, it also made me step forward because I was so inspired by her. Uh, Representative Rosemary Marshall um, did a lot for House District 8. Um, she fought really hard to ensure that um, there was a place at the table for black voices and, you know, figured I could kind of do something similar too. Um, but it wasn't until I worked for President Obama mm-hmm. that it felt like it was no longer a maybe, if, or when, or possible. It was, I need to do this now Um, because we are at a place in our country where we need strong leaders who are not divisive that will bring people together and get things done. And so I remember staffing um, the president here in Colorado um, at City Park and we got a few moments to talk. And I think once I got over the shock and awe that he was talking to me, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I realized that... um, I had no excuse not to run. I couldn't say to him, like, I am the first African-American LGBT person. There's not been one in office, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't say that, you know, there's not a lot of black people serving. Like, that's not going to work here because he's the first black president. Right. So he's like, nice try. Right. Like, <laughs> no time for your excuses. <laughs> exactly. Get it done. Um, and so then I made a plan. So then I ran, you know, and I knew that I could do that. And um, that is inspiring. Um, I ran, though, because specifically um, I am pretty appalled by our uh, criminal justice system. Same. You know, I mean, you can look at two people who are of identical age, income, backgrounds even, but are different races, Mm -hmm. and they will be treated differently by our system. Yeah. Um, and if you are a black man, you will go into the system more than likely. And that's really concerning to me. It's not because black people are more criminal, right? It's not because we have this innate thing in us. It's really because of so many things, including, uh, over-policing and the failed war on drugs, mm-hmm. um, the way that there's bias in prosecution, so many layers of injustices that are piled onto our communities really, change the dynamics and make the fact that, you know, black and brown people are overrepresented in the criminal justice system a reality. And there's a lot tied up into that too, right? So then you get into housing mm-hmm. and people getting pushed out of their housing and, um, and how that impacts the criminal justice system. You look at mental health and how people have lack of access to mental health and addiction services and that the impact of that on the criminal justice system. I mean, our largest mental health facilities are our jails right now yeah and that shouldn't be right we should be able to get people the help that they need education we're disproportionately impacted by a 
bad education system. Mm-hmm. Um, your ability and your likelihood that you will be a success story or you will achieve or you will go to college boils down to the zip code yeah. you live in. And that's not right. And quite frankly, that's not the America I thought we had when I was growing up, right? right. That's not the country that I thought that we were in. And I feel like we're going backwards, not forwards. And so when I ran, um, I talked about those issues. And that was was why I ran. And it's why I'm running again for re-election. Um, because it is important. And we have to have black and brown voices at the table when we're talking about issues that have such a huge impact on our communities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting is I, I went into politics initially. I, so my, my undergraduate degree is in political science uh. and I actually did what I went to school for, right? Which I mean, people don't usually do that, but yeah. I did. <laughs> uh, I never felt compelled to run, but one thing that kept me really engaged in the political process was, you know, I spent a good portion of my childhood in Montbello, yeah. not all of it, um, but a good portion. And I was, that part of that group of kids that was taken out of the district to go to school whose parents were like, you can't go to school here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to school in, in Centennial mm-hmm. all the way across town. Mm-hmm. And then once I was old enough to drive, then it was responsibility my responsibility to take my younger siblings and drop them off in the morning and pick them up and, and do the whole thing because we couldn't rely on our schools and our zip code to take care of the community. And this is an ongoing problem. It's It hasn't really improved I mean, it has. Okay, so Northeast, it has improved. Um, but is it where it should be? No. Absolutely not. It's not. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that made me think really deeply about the political process because I went to a pro- predominantly white school. When kids found out that I lived in Montbello, it did two things. Interestingly, it gave me street cred, which was, like, hilarious because... <laughs> I was not. I, you're you. I mean, <laughs> I was not doing anything that required street cred. I mean, I was on the step team yearbook. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I was a cheerleader. Yeah. so I get it. <laughs> and then the and the other thing is, people thought that I lived in like an abandoned building or something. And I was like, first of all, this is Colorado, and we don't really have neighborhoods like that here. And I think you think that because I'm brown. And you're white. And my family actually is in the same economic class as you. But it was just, it was a lot of judgy, judgy son that goes on, which happens in high school, but it was a different level. So when I became involved in politics, I was really engaged in how do we get younger people to vote? Because I considered it sort of my rent that I needed to pay in the world. I think that's evolved over time. I had to take a hard step away from politics and I don't plan on going back um but I understand (laughs) it was I got major burned out but now I I see what's happening in the world it's exhausting it's it feels like a constant battle every single day and I no longer consider voting or being politically politically engaged a the rent that I need to pay in the country for being a citizen here for me, it's become a revolutionary act. Mm. So I almost feel more deeply about it, which is weird because I've never skipped voting before. <laughs> I've always voted. But now it's like, oh, God. I mean, come hell or high water, I don't care if I had to crawl into the voting booth. I would have to vote. Mm-hmm. And it scares me that I 
still see a lot of people in my age group and a lot younger that are not about it. They don't want to do it. And I don't know what to do with that. Where you where do you land on that? You know, I think that absolutely voting is a revolutionary act. Um, but so is holding your ele- elected officials accountable. Yeah. Right. That's huge. Um, we have so much in what you just said is very true. The education system is not where it needs to be. Um, people are not getting justice. Right. Um, there are inequalities and there's so in healthcare and all mm-hmm. this stuff. And there's so much that we need to do. It does start with voting, though. Um, but as I look around and I talk to people my age, younger, older, they're not engaged right now. Right. Um, we have ballots coming to Colorado in your mailbox. It's very easy to vote here um, on Monday or Tuesday. And people don't know what's on the ballot. Right. That's where people are because it feels so divisive and so gross mm-hmm. that people are like not doing it. Yeah. You know? And so I believe that we have to meet people where they are. And as elected officials, we have to stop thinking that people are just going to come to us mm-hmm. and requiring them to come to us and go to them. Mm-hmm. So I try to do things differently. Like I have spoken word town halls. Right. Um, and I say, you know what, we're going to mobilize around the arts and then I'm going to sneak in some politics, <laughs> entertain them, you know what I then mean? Then educate them. Exactly. It's a good strategy. Exactly. Exactly. And show how these worlds, um, collide and overlap and how they're intertwined. Mm-hmm. You know, a good spoken word piece probably does talk about social injustices. Right. Right. So how, how can we fix that? Um, and what can we do to work together to change that reality? And so, um, so that's what I believe, and that's how I try to. That's how I try to govern or legislate or lead is by meeting folks where they are, and then actually responding to their needs and what policies they want to see me work on, and figure out a way that together we can help make things better for the next person. Mm-hmm. So I meet with people, for instance, who are in the criminal justice system. I go to uh, to uh, prisons often. Um, I go to jails often and I meet with folks in community corrections who are in the community and I ask them, you know, what is it that you want me to work on? What do you think we can fix? Now, I am not a judge. I'm not a lawyer. I cannot change the outcome of your case right. um, or your situation. But together, we can change situations for someone else. Mm-hmm. We can make the system better. And so when I was down at a women's facility a couple years ago, the only thing that women, the women wanted it over and over and over again, um, was tampons. Yeah. I just read a story on this. Yeah. Uh, Access to tampons. tampons. And now I have a sister who's been in and out of the criminal justice system for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember depending on where she was, we had to put money on her books for tampons. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and that is hugely problematic because, well, sometimes we couldn't, right? Sometimes right. we couldn't afford to. Um, and when you think that people are going to have their basic needs met, for women, that includes tampons, right? Right. But in Colorado, it didn't. In Colorado, you had to pay for it yourself, which if you're making less than a dollar a day, an $8 box of tampons is out of reach when you're also paying to call your family. Right. You know, having to buy from the canteen or whatnot, um, that becomes really, um, really burdensome. 
But then on top of that, as I kind of dug into the issue more, I realized that not only did women need tampons, but that they were actually getting uh, sanctioned for soiling their clothes if they bled through their if they bled through their clothes. That's outrageous. So it was this like system it's, of it's degradation. Like, de- degradation. It's punishing right? you for being a woman at right. that point. And it's humiliating. Right. And it's keeping you in your place. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and if you needed tampons, you had to prove a medical need to a male guard. A medical need. Yes. And you're like, what does that mean? <laughs> it's a, absurd. Oftentimes male guards. And so these are things that we just, you know, I said, I'm going to change it. Mm-hmm. And in my first uh, legislative session, I went to do a budget amendment and I said, we're changing this and I will take the, the money that it costs only $40,000 in uh, a nearly $1 billion department, only $40,000 it would take to get all those women tampons in the state, in the state. And they wouldn't do it. <laughs> 40,000. Their budget is almost $1 billion. So, Wow. So I said, well, you know what? If you guys can't figure it out with your budget, then I will find the money in the executive director's salary. Mm-hmm. So I took it out of his salary. And all of a sudden, the money opened up. Oh, of course. All of a sudden, <laughs> they found the $40,000 to get women tampons. And I haven't heard of any issues with it since it's been enacted. But I did go back to talk to those women. Mm-hmm. And um, and they felt like their voices were heard. And that's what matters. Yeah. It's what matters. Representation matters. You gotta it have really it. does. It does. Yep. Yep. So then we work on some of the longer term things too, you know, like mm-hmm. how'd you get in here? Simple possession. Simple possession should never land you in prison. Yeah. It should land you in treatment, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and that's where we are now and we have to change that. Otherwise, let me tell you, as taxpayers, we're paying much more Oh yeah. to incarcerate people than we are to get them help. Yeah. Um, and we're not keeping our communities any safer. And so I work on those issues a lot and I'll give you something that might be surprising. Uh, we're able to talk about it now in a bipartisan way. It's not just Democrats. It's not just people of color talking about this. Um, it's white Republican men who are saying, yeah, there's some, there's some issues here. Let's Mm -hmm. figure out how to work together on this. And I think that's why I've been um, pretty successful in my first two years in office. Mm -hmm. What do you think the disconnect has been in with, I think, the general public and even representatives being not willing to act on some of these simple fixes, maybe not simple, but practical fixes in our criminal justice system that can make the system more justice focused mm-hmm. for everyone and, in fact, save us a whole lot of money because we don't have the recidivism rate that we have and we're these people are going to come back into our community and they're going to be our neighbors and they're Mm -hmm. going to be, we're going to shop next to them. We're going to access the same services as them. Um, But there's, I've always saw this disconnect between lock them up and punish and not a lot of conversation around understanding that this person is going to be in your community, whether you like it or not. And so we have to figure out a way to make this work for everyone so that they come out people that can function in society instead of people that are going to go back to prison. I don't quite understand that disconnect. I struggle with it all the time. Where, what do you think that comes from? Where is it? Yeah, I think there's a lot of, um, you have to be tough on crime to be elected, Mm -hmm. right? You have to be that tough on crime person. And for some people for a very long time, tough on crime meant uh, incarcerating everybody um, and not giving them any type of services at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but w- what we realized was that just creates more crime. 
Right. Right. Because when you have a high recidivism rate, it means that more people are going back to jail. Right. They're going back to jail because they're committing more crimes and they're committing crimes typically based on their situation because of their situations. Right. Right. They can't find housing. They're not able to get jobs. Um, so they can't put food on the table. Um, they end up going back into the places where they committed crimes in the first place, which is never, it's usually not a good healing environment mm-hmm. to move forward. And you never got help for any of the underlying trauma that you might be dealing with. Right. And so people are starting to realize that people deserve true second chances and sometimes thirds, right? Um, that really get them back on their feet. That really it does include jobs and housing and education. And that those things are so important if we don't want to just see our, our prisons grow. Mm-hmm. So if we don't want to be in a scenario where we have more prisons than apartment complexes, right? we got to go the other direction. We are the number one incarcerator in the world. Yeah. In the world. In the world. We have to do things differently. And so for for me, the turning point in working with Republicans on this issue um, is the fact that they actually don't think that government should grow at all. Right. And maybe I'm oversimplifying, but let me put it that way, right? Mm-hmm. That they don't want government to grow. And they're seeing this Department of Correction budget continue to grow. Mm-hmm. And they're like, whoa, whoa, we got to get a handle on this. And I agree. Right. So let's figure out how to do that. And for me, it's ensuring that we do break down and dismantle some of these things that play into the prison industrial complex Mm -hmm. and mass incarceration. Mental health is a huge piece of that, right? And mental health is an addiction services is the basis for caring for Denver legislation that you're working on now. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about what that is. Yeah. So caring for Denver is on your November ballot. Um, It is a ballot measure to provide $45 million worth of mental health and addiction services for people right here in Denver. So for just a quarter on a $100 sales tax increase, we'll be able to get people the services that they need. Now, we already talked about the fact that people are over, we are over relying on our criminal justice system and that our jails are our largest mental health facilities in Denver and in Colorado. Mm -hmm. But we also have an alarming suicide rate here. Um, We have some, we have the highest, one of the highest suicide rates in the nation. And the single leading cause of death is suicide for 10 to 24 year olds in Denver, 10 to 24. We have to do something different. We have to get people the help that they need. Caring for Denver will do that. So it's ballot measure 301. Mm-hmm. Um, vote yes. It'll be towards the end of the ballot. But we really need that help because it's these are the simple solutions, these complicated problems, right? It is very easy as making sure we have therapists and peer supports in every school. It is as easy as making sure that people have access to Narcan so they don't die right. on the streets of Denver. We have three to four overdoses on the streets of Denver every single day. Mm-hmm. You know, it is making sure that we have a place that people can go that is not jail, um, that is in partnership with law enforcement and the DAs and the criminal defense bar, that it's clean, provides respite and detox. We could do that here in Denver. We can do things differently. I mean, right now, if someone called me and said, I need help, I might get them into a walk-in place. But for the most part, if you need to get into a program, it's going to take me at least six weeks to help you. Right. In the meantime, I say, don't die. Right. Mm -hmm. Or you can go commit a crime and go to jail and, you know, at least you'll have access to medication. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, uh, and I could probably get you in a drug court or get put on a 72-hour hold in our ERs. And I don't know anything more terrifying than that. Right. Right. 
So there is a different option, and that is to create an infrastructure of help and wellness and healing in our communities. Caring for Denver will do that. It seems, you know, I always watch the ballot measures. It seems like it's been pretty well received yeah. so mm-hmm. far. Are you getting pushback on it? Not yet. Um, we're not getting a lot of pushback. It's just a matter of making sure that people know what's on the ballot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny because I was talking about criminal justice system and all that. And I was sitting with the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police. And um, I've also sat with the Police Protective Association. And we're sitting around and... And the FOP's like, well, you know, I'll say we don't typically agree with you, Representative, because <laughs> <laughs> typically uh, we're not on the same page. But they're like, for this one, we agree with you. And we know that you're a fighter and you're a woman of your word. And so we trust you. Mm-hmm. And that made a huge difference. Right. And so that kind of opened um, the door for caring for Denver in a way where I said, you know what? It doesn't matter your race, your income, your background, your age, your your place of employment, we all need help. Mm-hmm. And these men, and there was a couple women there as well, they need it too. Yeah. They need it too. And so let's join together and create solutions for Denver. And that's what we're doing. So where can listeners in Denver learn more about Caring for Denver? Yeah. You can go to Denver. Uh, dot com or Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at caringfordenver.com mm-hmm. or caringfordenver. Yeah. And most importantly, vote. Most importantly, vote. <laughs> and you vote. can learn more about it once it passes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, in Colorado, we're past our voter registration day. Aren't we? Oh, no, you can register all the way up until on election day. Correct. You are correct. Yes. So you can vote on election day. You can register to vote on election day. You will get your ballot in the mail. But if you don't or mm-hmm. you lose it, you can still go and vote at a vote center. You don't have to go to the one in your neighborhood if it's easier to go to the one by your work or by where you're hanging out, you could do that too. So it's very easy to vote here in Denver. And if you do have a felony, once you're off paper, you can still vote in Colorado as well. And if you're pretrial in the jails, you can vote. Um, And there'll be people going around registering uh, people to vote in the jails, and I believe also accepting their ballots. And so um, there are a lot of options for voting here in Denver. Good to know. For those of you here in Denver, not all our listeners are in Denver, but for those of you who are in Denver, you guys know me. I've told everybody every time that there is an election, if you need someone to pick you up and take you to vote, I will do it. Yes. If you need help filling out your ballot, I will come to you and I will help you fill it out. All you got to do is message a girl. I'm here. You know how to reach me. So no excuses. No excuses. <laughs> and I can put that out there the same uh, way and say, yes, I will help you get that ballot in. And if you have questions about your ballot, reach out too. you know, Absolutely. if you don't know what everything is, do definitely do your research. Um, feel free to call if you have questions. It is important to know what you're voting for. Mm-hmm. It's also important to vote the entire ballot. Yes. The so whole vote the ballot. entire ballot. And don't forget to sign it. Don't forget to sign you it. You have to sign it, you guys. <laughs> Somebody told me last election, they were like, I, I think I forgot to sign my ballot. And I was like, oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, that's not good. <laughs> Here's the other thing I don't think people know about. Is you can actually go online um, with the Denver County Clerk's Office and register your phone number or your email, and you'll get text or email alerts that tracks your ballot. So they'll tell you when your ballot is mailed to you. They'll They'll tell you when your vote is cast when it's received, mm-hmm. right? When it's collected, all of those steps along the way, they will send you alerts. So you'll know, 
if your ballot was rejected before, you know, the end of election day, ideally, um, you'll know if there was an issue with your signature, mm -hmm. um, especially if you turn that ballot in a little early. And so mm -hmm. that's what's really exciting. And also in Colorado, if you do have an issue with your ballot, you do have the ability to cure your ballot after the election. Um, and so some of these races will be very close. Mm -hmm. um, that might be something that needs to happen as well. It's been races have been so close that they've had to cure ballots um, to figure out who the real winner is. Yeah. Yeah, it happens. So do your research. Go vote. It's not too late. You can if you're not registered. I know a lot of people had just moved to the state of Colorado. You can still register to vote in this state. And yep. it's important that you do. So go do that. You have until election day november the 6th which is just what, a little over two weeks away oh my gosh it's coming <laughs> it's coming it's coming <laughs> roughly three weeks away yeah uh two weeks by the time this episode airs so there's time get it done go to caringfordenver.com to learn about that ballot initiative and uh leslie where can people look you up Yes. Yeah, so you can also find me on Facebook at Leslie for Colorado, um, Instagram and Twitter at Leslie Herod. And then my website is Leslie Herod for Colorado.com. And that's spelled H E R O D. Yes. And she's on all of the platforms <laughs> um, and easy to get a hold of. I mean, I got over it. Exactly. It's not that hard. <laughs> not that hard really. I was already following you. <laughs> <laughs> don't underestimate the power of social to connect you to people you didn't think that you could get connected to i could tell you some stories right 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 <laughs> all right so next up this is the portion of the show where we talk about a woman of impact that most people have never heard of and are probably never going to hear about today i picked a little bit of an unusual story for this show because it's really more true crime and although my listeners know that i love true crime in my private life it's not something we really talk about on this show but this story i think is timely it is very much related to the criminal justice system and what we talked about in this conversation today and I just think it's important to tell these kinds of stories, um, especially when a, a woman is essentially taking a stand on something very important that impacts a lot of people. So today we are talking about women of impact, Christina Pumphrey. Christina is the former Jackson County state attorney, um, specifically in the, in the town of Mariana, which is in Tallahassee, well, right outside of Tallahassee, Florida, about 65 miles outside of Tallahassee. So she spent nearly 15 years as a state government lawyer and then went to work for the 14th Judicial Circuit in the prosecutor's office just this past May in 2018. She was very familiar with the job because she worked for the Department of Children and Family Services in the child welfare section and spent a lot of time with the prosecutors. She decided to switch over to the prosecutor's office and not long after she was there, she started hearing rumors, really nasty rumors about a certain county deputy sheriff by the name of Zachary Wester. And she was intrigued, but she ignored it initially. But then some assistant public defenders started to come to her and confide in her and tell her, listen, you can't trust him. You've got to watch out for him. We have a lot of our clients are complaining about him. Something is up. Something isn't right with this guy. So she took it upon herself to do a little investigating, just a little poking around. <laughs> Why are people talking about this guy? I've never met him. But she was seeing a lot of his cases because she did simple drug possession cases. Now, as we talked about 
earlier, any drug possession case can ultimately end you up in prison, um, even if it's a small amount, depending on what the law is, where you live. So she started to look at his traffic stop reports, at his arrest records, and she felt like something was off because she pulled the body cam footage that went along with those reports and they didn't match up. What she was seeing on the on the cam footage was different than what was reported in the written reports. So she took her concerns about Deputy Zachary to her bosses. This set off an entire chain reaction where ultimately the deputy was fired. Hmm. He was found to have been planting evidence on people that he was pulling over in routine traffic stops or at times pulling them over for no reason at all. He was targeting, um, according to her records, people that were vulnerable. They were poor people. Uh, they were people that were known to have a criminal record. Um, so they were guilty by association. Oftentimes he would pull them out of traffic or wherever he saw them, pull them over and plant something on them. Uh, they believe that these people were picked because they oftentimes had criminal records and they wouldn't complain. They would just want to get through the system as quickly as possible so they go back to their lives. Ultimately, the county dismissed nearly 120 cases involving this particular sheriff. He was only with this force for two years. So where he was before that, no idea. I couldn't find a record of that. Uh, it looks like those cases are, um, those records are locked down right now because it's an ongoing investigation. So Christina Pumphrey's investigation showed serious cracks in the criminal justice system in Jackson County. Now, mind you, Jackson County is a small place. It's a town of less than 10,000 people. Um, and the medium income is, is around 23,000 annually. So it's not a rich county by any means. It's a small county. And it sounds anecdotally, at least, like this is an area of Florida that has been hit pretty hard by the opioid epidemic. So there's a lot of vulnerable people here. Um, charges at this point have not been filed against the sheriff, although he has been let go. However, there is evidence. There's very clear evidence. There's a smoking gun in the footage of his body cam of him planting evidence. Now, I don't know why he wouldn't be charged. Maybe this is part of the ongoing investigation. They're going to figure that out. Um, but this speaks, I think, to the larger problem with policing in our justice system that has to be figured out. Going along with that, Christina Pumphrey felt that she had to resign her position because as a whistleblower, she felt that she was retaliated against. She has recently filed suit against the department. Um, and she said as a result of her bringing this case to light and exposing this deputy, she was ostracized, ignored, punished in her position. Um, of course, the department disagrees with her. They're saying that's not true that she's overreacting as she was a rookie um, attorney and essentially didn't know what she was doing. In reality, she has 15 years of experience. She was just new to this department. She knew what she was doing. If you have 15 years of experience, I would think you're um, pretty experienced. The smoking gun in this case was body cam footage when the officer just this past June pulled over a couple um, that were driving in a van and he arrested a woman by the name of Kimberly Hazelwood. Um, and charged her with drug possession, with meth possession. Um, Christine watched the footage and saw something in the officer's hand and believed that he planted it on her. 
this essentially caused it, it really ruined Kimberly's life. She didn't have a criminal record. She didn't have so much as a speeding ticket on her record. She spent the weekend in jail. She lost her job. She, even though the charges were eventually dropped, her record does show that she was arrested for meth possession. And she's going to have to go through a lot of time and expense on her part to get that expunged from her record. Um, it's incredibly damaging when these kinds of things happen. It's not just to the individual that happens to or the department, but everybody involved. It tarnishes everyone. Um, I really think this is an important story because these kinds of problems are systemic. If he only, if this particular officer only worked for this department for two years, he had an entire career as an officer. So where else was this going on? And how many people had hints that this was happening or knew directly that this was happening and didn't do a thing to stop it? Um, in an interview, Christine's criticism is that the system failed completely on every level, that the checks and balances that are supposed to be in place didn't work. Um, she said it's not about one dishonest officer. She said there's still his supervisor at the sheriff's department and whatever quality control program that's supposed to be in place. There's the state attorney's office who's supposed to be reviewing the evidence and didn't in this case. There's the public defender's office who's supposed to be representing the people and still something went wrong. You can't blame it on one person or one thing. This is truly a systemic problem are her comments. Um, so this is an ongoing case. I don't know where it's going to go. This Again, this is a small county. Maybe they negotiated out. There's a settlement of some kind. At this particular stage, it doesn't appear that charges are going to be brought against this officer. So potentially he's free to go to another department and do this all over again. It's really sad. Mm -hmm. In light of that story and the conversation we just had, what do you see as a solution to something like this? Well, first I'll say that she is a hero. Mm-hmm. Um, for what she's done and coming forward. And there is, retaliation is real. Right. Right. Um, it's very real, especially when you're a whistleblower like this, but we need more folks to come forward and say what's happening. I'm just so concerned about how many people were affected by this mm -hmm. person, by this officer, by this man who obviously has no care in the world for the people he's hurting. None whatsoever. And then it makes me think how many others of are there like him? Right. And why is it so hard for us to get rid of the bad seeds mm -hmm. and not just allow them to go to a different department and not just give them uh, protection from prosecution? Mm -hmm. He should be prosecuted. If right. I plant drugs on you right now and it's on tape, I will be prosecuted. Right. Why should someone in a uniform have protection from that? Mm -hmm. In fact, you hold the person in that uniform at a higher standard, and I believe they should have tougher penalties and consequences. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about this, I agree that it is not just one thing. And, you know, I talk about things like the growing prison population, and we look at prison beds specifically. Okay, well, we can do something to reduce those beds, but if we're not looking at prosecutorial reform, mm -hmm. if we're not looking at bail reform, um, if we're not looking at sentencing reform, um, if we're not looking at community corrections, then we're not going to get it right. Right. And we have to look at the entire system, policing, of course, school to prison pipeline. We have to look at the entire system. So, you know, when I worked under uh, Governor Ritter years ago, um, we did something called the P20 Council. It was for education, preschool through higher ed. 
I believe for criminal justice, we need to look at the entire system. Mm -hmm. We need to look at the entire spectrum. Preschool, because kids are getting arrested in preschool. Yeah. Well, not preschool, but around that age. But they're starting the behaviors, getting kicked out of classrooms Mm -hmm. and things like that through adulthood, right? We need to look at that entire system and how we are not treating people justly or fairly and look at every single point in the system that we can fix and reform. Now that's work that will take a long time and it should. And it'll take a commitment from a lot of players to really change the status quo and it should. But I do believe it. Uh, and par- a part of that solution is ensuring that we can prosecute cops. Yeah. Bad cops. Well, I think what's so important about Christina Pumphrey's story is that here's a woman in one small county, less than 10,000 people. And she really had to go out of her way on a hunch that something was off to uncover what was happening here. And to her point, the problem is systemic. She's one person. Any number of people could have helped intervene before it got to this point and no one did. And then her choice to do that, she did that at great risk to herself. She had to have known that she was risking her livelihood when she came forward, but she felt like it was the right thing to do because here's a a guy with power who has the power to upend and completely destroy people's lives. And he did just that. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a problem of the cracks in the system on every level. It's also, I think, an issue of personal responsibility where you see something is wrong and you choose to pretend that you don't see it. She could not have been, in my opinion, the only one. There's no way. He wasn't a a rookie police officer that only served for two years. He had only been in this county for two years. What was he doing in the other 15 or whatever years he had been a police officer? Learning from someone else. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. He didn't wake up one day and was like, I'm going to plant some meth on the next person I see. That's not how that works. So I just felt like it's an unusual story for me to do here. But I felt like it was really important for all of those reasons, because a whistleblower, I think, takes on a great amount of risk to themselves, even though there's supposed to be laws in place that protect them. As we see from this story, she still wasn't protected. She yeah. had to resign because she was being retaliated in indirect ways on a daily basis. So what is she to do now? Yeah. And I, I do hope that she continues her work. Um, and I hope that her lawsuit allows her to um, continue to go after bad apples mm-hmm. so that we can have trust and faith in our law enforcement right we don't right now i don't i mean there's some great law enforcement officers that i know one-on-one and i think you're a good one yeah you know we need more of you on the streets but right now if i need to call 911 i'm gonna think twice and when they come i'm gonna be scared Mm -hmm. we don't know what will happen that's not how it should be so um i'm gonna give a plug for a movie that i just saw um, in a book that I just read called The Hate You Give. Oh, yeah, it's so good. <laughs> it's amazing. And the book goes even deeper than the movie. Um, but it definitely does talk about what happens when we create this vicious cycle. It's generational now. Mm-hmm. It's generational now. So the solutions will be multi-generational as well. Um, and how that impacts a community how that impacts people's perceptions of themselves and others. 
uh, their worth in society, their place in society, and the outcomes that they will get, even if they're doing nothing wrong. It's, it's really, there's not a better word. I, it's really sad to know that, you know, when you are a young, especially black man or a young person of color, that society's first notion of you is that you are lying mm-hmm. or you are wrong or you're not to believed or you're not worth speaking your own voice and have it being heard. That's where we are today in society. Um, and that, that does so much to someone's psyche internally as well. We're not addressing any of that, you know? And so when I think about, you know, the hate you give, um, which spells out thug, it's Tupac, you know, thug life, you know, um, it's real, right? It's real. And Tupac was talking about it back then, yeah. but he didn't learn it from himself. He didn't Mm-mm. think of it. It was coming for, for like I said, generations. Mm-hmm. Um, and what are we doing to ourselves and our society where we're treating people like that over and over and over again, starting from infants and telling them that they don't matter and that no one cares if drugs are planted on them, mm-hmm. that no one will be punished for it. And yeah, we might let you out or your case might get dropped, but you are going to suffer those collateral consequences and no one's going to give it a second thought. Mm -hmm. We need more people like her to come forward and to shine a light on these injustices. And then we got to work to fix them. But we got to, I mean, this man should never be working again. He shouldn't be free. Yeah. He shouldn't be free. He's ruined so many people's lives. Um, So... On that note, we're going to end here. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot to unpack in this episode. Um, but I think it's a really important conversation. Voting is coming up for everybody in the country. So it's it's time. It's you got to make your voice be heard. You can do that through voting. So make sure you do that. As usual, I will link to all of these places for you in the show notes so that you can continue your learning. I will make sure to link to The Hate You Give as well. I will um, promote that as well. It's an excellent book. I haven't seen the film yet, but the book is incredible. So check it out. And I will um, link to Christina Pumphrey as well because her story is really interesting and amazing and important and it's ongoing. Uh, she just resigned her position like maybe three weeks ago. And so I'll, I will be checking in on this. I hope you will continue to check in on this and continue your learning. Thank you so much, Leslie, for joining us. Happy to today. be here. Appreciate you so much. I know election is coming up, so I know you have a million and a half things to get done before then. So we definitely appreciate you giving some time to share your work with us and why it's so timely and important right now. So thank you. You guys, you know what to do now. You're supposed to head over to iTunes and give us a five-star review and share this episode with your friends. Sharing is caring. You know the drill. Get it done. Check out the show notes, learn some more, and tune in next week for another episode of That's What She Did. Bye.